Good morning. If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. The bulletin is, goes verses 5 through 17. Actually, I'm going to back up a little bit to what we talked about last week. Um, you know, my, I just have to tell you, you know, my greatest fear about looking at a passage like this is that we could look at something uh, here and just kind of shrug and go, hmm, okay. It just not have any impact at all. I'm fearful of that because... We're sort of inured to this. We're sort of numb to it. But in my estimation, this is for sheer concentration of information that God wants to provide to us about how to live the Christian life. You'd be hard to come up with a set of verses that are more condensed and, and enriched than these. And so I'd like to... Um, spend time really sort of taking a slow walk through these verses together, uh, sort of a, a time that, you, that we all could just concentrate on them carefully. And so that's, that's the end to which I hope to go. Let's pray with me if you would, please. Heavenly Father, uh, you know very well there's not one sin in this group I don't still wrestle with. And there's not one positive virtue of Christ in this group that I have any mastery over. I confess to you, I see the need. I see the desire of you to make me in, in daily life what you've made me positionally. And I'm sure everyone here, most people at least, see the critical nature of this. And I pray that this morning, the things we look at through your word, not through my words, but through your word, that the Holy Spirit would apply them to our hearts and that we would, in the end, be more like Christ. In the end, we would do the things, everything we do in the name of Christ. So that's what I pray in his name. Amen. There's actually a term in uh, the Department of Defense has a specific definition for this. It's called mission critical. Mission critical, as the name suggests, is, those, is that equipment or information without which the mission can't be done. It's the kind of thing that if you're going to do what it is you're asked to do, you must pay careful attention to this. And that's the kind of verses we're looking at today. We must pay careful attention to this. If you look at Colossians overall, the scheme is pretty clear. The mission is clear. Back in chapter 1, for example, Paul prays and he tells the Colossians, Paul's the apostle, He's an apostle. There aren't any apostles anymore. Paul was giving us the words the Holy, of the Holy Spirit to be written down so that these words would resonate in our hearts. That's how God works. He takes these words that he's given us and the Holy Spirit within us makes those two things comply. And he told us in chapter 1, I'm looking specifically at a prayer he begins with in verses 9 and 10. He prays that these people, and then therefore us, would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that, or so as to, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. The idea here is one that the Bible gives a pretty big fancy name to, that is sanctification. Sanctification just means the process of being set apart, which means God is taking us 
where we are in the day-to-day of life, and he is molding us to look like Christ so that at the end we will be like Christ. It says in, in the, another great passage you would want to look at to understand this more fully, in Romans chapter 8, where the great bulk of it is talking about the Holy Spirit, that God has predestined or predetermined that we're to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is the overall goal. These verses are here to tell us day to day to day how that happens. It says in Revelation that there is a great temple in heaven, and that is where Christ is worshipped, and there's a city in heaven, and that's not some ethereal place off there. That's another sphere that surrounds the sphere we're in. And that there's a gate there, and that nothing unholy is going to come into that gate. Revelation 21. That means that between where I am now, which is quite unholy, to then something has to happen. And it requires me to cooperate with God in this effort. As my, as my guy Tony Evans says, the Christian life is a walk, not a piggyback. God is not going to carry you there by yourself. You have to cooperate. I have to cooperate. And these verses explain the who and the what and the where and the why. Last week we looked at the first verses, and I'm sorry, we couldn't put them in your bulletin because it just squeezed it together too much. But if you remember last week, he gives us the positional truth of who we are in Christ. It says, Since therefore you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Those are present tense, past and present tense things. When you became a Christian and you said, I want you, Christ, to be my sin bearer. I don't want to have the full wrath of God unleashed on me. I want you to take that on for me. And Christ did. That's not the only thing that happened. These other things happened. We were at that time put in Christ. And when he was raised, this is actually what we commemorate or illustrate physically in baptism. When Christ was we, we are dipped in the water to say we associate ourselves publicly and in front of all the angelic beings, both good and bad. We, we associate ourselves with the death of Christ and you come up and you associate yourself with the resurrection of Christ. The Bible teaches us that's a reality. That's not just something in the future, that's something for now. But the process is one in which God is molding us and disciplining us. Another really great parallel chapter to look at, which we don't have time to do, is Hebrews chapter 12. In that chapter, it says that God disciplines every son or daughter he loves, meaning that he is training us, he's molding us to make us like Christ. That is the process. You wonder why he just didn't take us to heaven immediately. For his own good purposes, he takes time to bake the cake. We are in the process of being. And these verses are here to help us to understand. So it says, you've been raised up with Christ. You need to focus on where Christ is. He uses two terms there in the first few verses. I hope you have your Bible in front of you. I hope you'll do what I do. I take this and I mark it up. This is how you interact with God's Word. In, in my version here, I've underlined every time it says you, And I've circled every time it says Christ because it's the union between us and Christ that Paul is teaching us. The ethical things that happen only happen secondary to that. Otherwise, we'd be like any other religion. They'd say, here's a bunch of stuff to do. Do this, do the best you can. That's not the way it is for us. So he begins by saying, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. 
where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. And when he says that, he doesn't mean someplace way off out there. He means this sphere that surrounds the place that we call life, the world, the earth. In this sphere, we must already have our minds on where Christ is. You know how to set something. This morning, or if you're really a go-getter, last night, you set your clocks, right? Those people who are here didn't, clearly. But You know, you set them. We know what it is to set something. It's a willful act to, to turn. If you're like Bud, you did it two weeks ago, just so he'd be sure it was done. So you set your mind to something. You set your heart on something. You willfully put yourself there. This is not shuffling through life thoughtlessly. And it says you're to set your minds there. It is a mind-heart deal. You've got to get your mind right and your heart right, and that's what these verses are to do. We also are told here that we've died and our life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ is revealed, when He comes back, we're going to come with Him in glory. Glory means all the weight of Christ is going to be seen, the whole thing. Right now, Christ is hidden to the world. It's not visible. It's not obvious to anybody but believers who he is and where he is. So they go, oh, who cares? It's irrelevant to me. Someday it's going to be extremely relevant because he's coming back in the full weight of his glory. And when he does, we're going to be with him. And at that time, we're going to be fitted for the things of, of heaven. So that's what this is about. So let's look at these verses specifically, starting in verse 5. He says, because of all that, put to death, therefore, and I'm reading the version in your pew, this is the ESV, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. Let's take those apart a little bit. First of all, it says, put to death. This is not messing around language. This is not like, hey, you guys, try to do better at that. You know, try to minimize that. Try to put a band-aid on that. Try to do the best you can. This is the same thing as Christ saying in the Sermon on the Mount, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. That's brutal language. He's not joking around here. Now, Christ obviously wasn't talking about self-mortification uh, self in the sense that you're supposed to hurt your body. He was saying, be drastic here. Take this as serious as it is. And it looks like to me, these verses, especially verse 5, these are the sins of our age, as I said last week. Sexual immorality is, is the same word I understand in Greek from which we get the word pornography. It's moving into a world where sex outside of one man, one woman in marriage is participated in. That is God's way. That's what it's supposed to be. It is monogamous. It is one man, one woman inside of marriage. That's the way it's supposed to be. Do we live in a world where that's true? No, ever more so. That is laughed at. That's held in derision. But we have to swim counter to that current. To be involved in this is to be going contrary to what God wants. And all these other ways of explaining that to me seem to be sort of a downhill slide. Sexual immorality is sort of the permission to operate in that sphere, to bring it into your house to bring it home with you on a DVD, to look at it, to read about it, to find it on your computer, that sort of opens a gate. And then comes impurity, which seems to have a thought connotation. It's that we let our minds, instead of dwelling on the things that are supposed to, dwell on these things. 
And once that happens, that leads to passion, which is lust, which is not only do I see it, I want it. I want it badly. That's what I want. That's what I have to have. And evil desires means you're going to do something about it. And then covetousness, which is like greed, that's like wanting more. It could be in the sexual realm, but it could also be in the money realm. Because the next thing he says is that's idolatry. And we're told elsewhere that greed, the desire for more and more and more and more and more, is idolatry. You're worshiping something else. I'm worshiping something else. Maybe the reason he starts with these, in the whole Bible, these are the two biggies. If you look back in Proverbs about sexual immorality, there are only 31 books in Proverbs, and three of them directly or by allusion talk about why you should not participate in sex outside marriage in any form or fashion. It gives the young man advice, don't even go down that road, don't even go under a street, don't even go where you know she lives, stay away from it, it's too dangerous. It's ensnaring, and it's a downward slope. So it says we're to put to death those things. I think what that tells me is that probably what you and I are to do is to make a critical inventory of these things and say, here's an area I'm in danger. In a minute, we're going to talk about the church. I think this is where your Christian friends come in to help you and go, I will not let you go there. Or you go to them and say, don't let me go here. Don't let me be disarmed about this don't let me not be afraid of this that's not loving somebody that's not loving somebody we have to we have to participate in this together we fight as a unit we don't fight as individuals you'll notice most of the verbs here are plural on account of these things the wrath of God is coming it's on its way and those things you once walked and you were living in them but now there is the assumption here that the persons or that he's talking to have made this transition from before Christ to after Christ. That's the way you did live. This is the way you must live. It's so difficult for us not to carry all that forward with us into the new person we are now in Christ. But the wrath of God is coming against those things. I'm not quite sure what that means for the believer. It certainly doesn't mean you can lose your salvation if these things or conquering you, but it surely means you can lose the day-to-day-to-day comfort of walking with Christ and having his support and his fellowship. There is a sense, and the Bible teaches very clearly, there are two judgments coming. One is to get into heaven. That's one that's already been done for us. That's the one where there's only one question. Are you in Christ or not? That's the question. Did you take the blood of the Lamb of God and apply it to yourself? If you did... It tells us in Revelation, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That's the place you want your name. Of all the things you should want, you want your name in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb says, he applied my blood, he's in my book. Doesn't mean I'm perfect now, by any means. But it does mean I'm in the book. There's another judgment, and that is a judgment of believers who come before Christ to give an account of what we've done while we were here. The reason this is critical is you've only got one life to spend. You've got a finite amount of time, and it's not all that much. Some less for us than others. But, you know, I love, there's a Christian recording artist, Laura Story, who has this song, One Life to Lose. That's Christ's language. You've only got one life to lose. You've got one life to spend. We know how to spend. We know what it means to spend money. You had something, and then you don't have it. 
You got something in a bargain for paying for it. We have one life here. That's why it's critical that we're to be conformed and participate in every we can now to be conformed to the image of Christ. He says, so, but now you must, and then he goes into this, I, I would say the things that are listed under sex and money are actually, those are sort of victim-oriented you participate in those things, and somebody's victimized. You're victimized. Your family is victimized. The person, if you're looking, let's say, at something that you shouldn't look at in a magazine, or the, the person who was, who was objectified in that, the person who's spread out in that, if you will, or you know, they're on the page of that, they, that person is objectified. They've been lured into a big billion-dollar business to gratify the sins of people who participate in that. We should not be part of that. Those are victim sins. These are more at somebody. Believe me, I'm probably a pro this is a problem in every one of these. Put these things away. Be done with them. Be set them aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Anger means you can burst into flame. You know, Darlene and Christy are not looking up. I can burst into flame, I promise you. It's not good. It is not good. Something doesn't go the way I like it, I can burst into flame. That's a sin. Wrath means that you want revenge on something. Malice means you want someone else to suffer. You don't want it to go well for them. Slander means you give a false report. It's a church why it's that's epidemic among Christians. We're we're laughed at in the world for that. We talk about other Christians. It, we do. Obscene talk is just filth. That's the word for filth. Just participate in filth talk. These things are inappropriate. They don't fit. They're not right. They're not suited for us. We're not talking about your Sunday person. We're talking about our Monday through Sunday person, every day of the week, every setting, at your work, at your business, at your school, in your home, with your kids, with your spouse, the whole deal. They're inappropriate. They don't fit. They don't fit with Christ. They don't fit with who you're going to be. They're not in heaven. They're not going to heaven. You have to be done with them. Don't lie to one another. And his, this is the first time he says one another, but now we're getting into the, this is all of us. This is the church part for sure. Don't lie to one another. It's not right. Don't tell somebody something that's not true or that you don't know to be true. Apparently, it was a big practice back then. Looks like it hadn't changed much, maybe. Seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which, look at this, is being renewed to the knowledge, in knowledge after the image of its creator. What does that image of its creator sound like? Sounds like Genesis 1, doesn't it? We were made in the image of God. That process that went so wrong because of sin is now being made right. You wonder why life buffets you around, why God lets stuff come into your life. I wonder why this, why didn't that go right? I tried so hard, it didn't go right. What happened? It's because God uses this fallen world to make us like Christ. He's conforming us into the image of Christ, the process I spoke of earlier. It's not like something weird is happening to us. In fact, Peter says, this is happening to all your brethren in the world. Everybody gets this. Every believer gets this. It's supposed to be hard. Training is supposed to be hard. 
I don't guess there's ever been a NFL player who walked in and said, hey, thanks for drafting me. I guess I'll go ahead and start. And I don't think you need to help me at all. I think I got it. That can't be. He's drafted. There's a lot he has to learn. He's got to change. He's got to conform to the offense. He's got to conform to the defense. He's got to do a lot of things that he doesn't have already. And that's what's happening to us. We're this positionally. Now we need to be this in everyday life. We're in training. And here there is not Greek or Jew, which means those are the two big religious areas. Jews despise Greeks and Greeks despise Jews. Two different worldviews. That's gone. That's gone. There's no room for that now. There's no room. Well, these guys aren't. No, it doesn't, that doesn't matter anymore. Circumcised and uncircumcised. You know, religious, unreligious. Barbarian were people, they, they made fun of them because of the way they spoke. Scythian were nomadic Iranian people. I had to look that up. I guess that would be the people who are out in the furthest, most remote, unsophisticated part of the world. Slaves, free. It doesn't matter anymore. In Christ, that's all gone. There's no room for it. I guess this is a time to stop and say, there is no room for racial prejudice in the Christian world. None. Zero. If so, you're thinking completely wrong. Not even the shade of it. Shame on us for tolerating that. Or any other prejudice, intellectual prejudice, or anything else that could separate us. Christ is all and in all, meaning that the material part of us is indwelled by Christ, and that's all that matters. That's what unifies us, that's what makes us a family. There's no part for anything else. So having said all that, then he goes into these positive things. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. You've got to hold on to that. He doesn't hate you. He loves you. You know, God, it says, like a good father, disciplines the children he loves. He doesn't hate you. He loves you. You're chosen. You're beloved. You're dear to his heart. And so, there are things that comport with that, that agree with that, that you should be able to demonstrate at home and at work and school and everywhere else. And that is first, compassion. This the tender heart. There's no, there's no room for us to lack pity or to empathize or to look at somebody and go, ah, you got what you deserve. Because you didn't get what you deserve. I didn't get what I deserve. Kindness. We know that, that what that is. That's not being harsh. That's not being mean. That's not being cruel. That's being kind. These are to these would be the things that the, your coworkers say. How would you describe him? Gosh, he's compassionate. He always seems kind. He's humble. He's not trying to. He's not trying to put himself on top. All in fact, if anything, is this this lady just serves people. That just seems to be her her deal. Her, I think you call it your jam now. That's her jam. She serves people. Meekness means controlled strength. It doesn't mean milk toast. It means controlled strength. It means you take all that Christ has made you and you put it under His control. And patience. I'm going to skip right over that one. Big problem for me. Patience means you can hold on. It doesn't have to be right this second. It doesn't have to be right now. I don't have to, I don't have, to have my way right now. Bearing with one another, hanging with one another. This requires time. First of all, it requires interaction. If you're off living the Christian life by yourself, it's not going to work out so well for you because these are one another encouragements. You've you got to be with people to bear with one another. You wonder why Christ gave you that irritating roommate in college? 
kind of learning to bear with one another. For you ladies, that's, you hope you had one of those because you were getting ready for your husband. You got to bear with that guy. We're slow about this stuff. We're awfully slow. You're going to have to hang in there. It's going to take time. Yeah, you're laughing now, Jesse. <laughs> Kaylin, you won't be laughing long. You'll see. <laughs> if anyone has a complaint against one another and you think somebody wronged you, forgive each other. How much has the Lord has forgiven you? You got no place for holding grudges. I got no place for holding grudges. I want to apply the same standard to other people that Christ applies to me. That's not easy sometimes. So as Christ has forgiven you, you have to forgive other people. I mean, how many times do you talk about that in the Gospels? You've been forgiven this huge amount, and you're not going to forgive that? Are you kidding me? And overall, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So just remember, love is not an emotion. I don't care what the song says. It's not. Love is an action that you decide to take towards somebody for their benefit, whether they deserve it or not. It's a decision. It's something you do. Of course it would bind all these together. You want to know one of the secrets in life? You want to know one of the secrets of marriage is? If you don't feel loving, you act loving. And after a little while, the emotion will come. That's just the way it works. Over all those, do what Christ did. You think he felt like taking off those garments and just putting on a towel and washing the disciples' feet? But he did that as an absolutely perfect illustration of the Christian life. He got down, had to be on his hands and knees. He had to be in a position of servitude. That's what love looks like. And then these three last great things here. These are enormous let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you recall in one body. So Christ said in John 14, My peace I give you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world leaves, not as the world gives do I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. What he's giving us there is unbelievable. I'm a worrier. I'm a, I'm a fretter. I want everything... I want every minute of my life lined out, and if it goes haywire, I fret, I worry. It's not good. Somehow I've had to come to take those verses. I often go to John 14, 27, and I wake up in the middle of the night worrying, and I say, I don't want to disobey this. You gave me your peace. I'm asking you, Lord, put your peace into my heart. I have no peace. I have nowhere to land. I can't rationalize this enough to make myself peaceful, but I can take on the peace of Christ. That's the whole point about this. You have somebody in heaven who, as we looked at last week, greatly understands where you are. And he has absolute authority, and he has the power to execute, and he has the reach, the dominion to do it, and he can absolutely come into your heart and your mind, and he can give you peace that you wouldn't have otherwise. It's the whole thing. You, so you at another time, go look at those verses in Philippians chapter 4, 6 and 7. Don't worry about anything. Talk to him about it with thanks. And the peace of God, which passes understanding, will come and guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. You wake up in the night, you want to go grab that promise. B, 
be thankful. We're going to come back to that. And be thankful in verse 15. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I may be wrong about this because I, I, I think I could be accused of having a really narrow view. I think when it says the word of Christ, it's talking about this, this, what's contained between these two leather walls. It's not talking about something else. This is what the Holy Spirit gave us. Everything you need for life and godliness is in here. It's all contained here. We don't use it. We don't access it. Christy told me not to use this, but I'm going to anyway. It's probably a mistake. On my iPhone yesterday, I discovered something really cool that I didn't realize was there. You know, if you're using the calculator and you have it in the portrait or vertical position, you know, you get a small screen that can add, subtract, multiply, and divide. But what happens when you turn it this way? What do you get? Scientific calculator. I thought it was a graphing, but Keith said no. It's a scientific calculator. Man, you can take numbers. You can square them, cube them. You can do any number you can think of. You can get square roots. You can do logarithms. You can do... I, I really had a real nerdy afternoon yesterday playing with that thing. It was so cool. It was there all the time, but I never turned it into the landscape position so I could use it. See what I mean? It's the same thing with the Scripture. You've got it. It's in your hands. Everything he needs to tell you for life and godliness is, is in here. So it says, let that thing, which I believe is Scripture, which takes more than a casual reading, dwell in you richly. That's picturesque, isn't it? Dwell in you richly. It's rich soil. It can come out of you richly. So much so that rather than just taking it in, you actually put it back out. That with the Word of God, you can teach and admonish one another with wisdom. Paul said, my favorite verse in this whole thing is what Paul said his life was about. He said, we, he's, he's speaking of himself, we admonish every man, teaching every man or every person with all wisdom in order that we may present every person complete in Christ. Now there's a goal for your life. But you gotta be in it. You gotta let it. You gotta let it take you over. And so we are to teach, admonish one another. And what, really cool. One of the things he says, the way this is done, is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I have to tell Jesse again. Thank you, Jesse, and the whole praise team. We're singing songs that are scripturally based. Clearly, they've run those through scripture. They're not just singing songs that some really cool guy wrote that kind of came popped up out of his head. They're matching them up with Scripture. And Jesse, if you'll notice, often quotes Scripture to show you that these two things are aligned with one another. That's the useful, that's where songs and hymns and spiritual songs, the distinction of those is, I mean, psalms, I understand. Well, there are psalms. But hymns and spiritual songs, are it's indistinct to me what he means there. But clearly, they're things that are based on what he just said about Scripture. With thankfulness in your hearts. And whatever you do, so in case something was missed earlier, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? Don't put his name on something he wouldn't put his name on. Do put his name on things that he would do. We, it just... It bugs me because I do In Jesus' name, amen. That means nothing. It means nothing. You can't just throw Jesus' name in at the end. It's what, what you say, what I say in my prayers, have to comport with what Jesus would say, would he want done. So here it is. 
You want to have a powerful prayer life? Pray Scripture. You know God wants to do His Word. He wants His will to be done. So I think that's what it means. Don't do anything He wouldn't put His name on. Work, school, house, driving, oh, driving your car. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't call the driver who pulls out in front of me idiot. And I do. You know, i got to get rid of that. got to do the things Christ would do. That's the whole point. And it's really cool that three times he tucks this in here, and be thankful, in verse 15. And with thankfulness in your hearts, verse 16. And giving thanks to God the Father through Christ. That is the appropriate reaction to God's good uses of things. That is the appropriate way to look at life, is be thankful. It's really funny. You look in the first of Romans. I don't know if you know Romans pretty well. It's got this, at the end, it's really hard to read. Full list of how the world just decays into perversion and just horrible stuff. But if you look at where it starts, it says, and they didn't acknowledge him or give thanks to him. It started off not giving thanks, and then it just devolves from there. But we're the ones who are to give thanks in all things. Paul clearly tells us in another letter to, to the Thessalonians, give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. That is a big bowing of the knee to the sovereignty of God. You give thanks in all things. That's where we're supposed to be. So I think the bottom line is here, when you're in the situations of life, you're to realize you're a new person in Christ. I'm to realize I'm a new person in Christ, and I'm to act accordingly. I'm not to act in a way contrary to that. There's a story that's told, and I do think it's probably apocryphal. I wish it was true, but it's probably not. But anyway, uh, about the great saint of Africa, St. Augustine. It was really lucky for him he wasn't born in East Texas because his name would have been St. Augustine. St. Augustine, he, you know, so there's this, he was a bad fellow. Maybe I've said this up here before. He was a bad fellow before he knew Christ, and he was living with a prostitute. And So after he came to Christ, he was a changed man. But they met each other walking down the street, and he passed right by her, and he didn't say anything. She says, Augustine, Augustine, it's me. And he said, yes, but it's not me. That's the change. We're not who we were before we're in Christ. We're a different person in our lives must reflect that to bring honor to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the certainty of your word, the clarity of your word, the indwelling Holy Spirit who makes us want to conform to your word. It's information we wouldn't have outside of your word, and it's things we wouldn't do unless you prompted us and enabled us to do them. Lord, we do want to be conformed so that we could do everything in the name of Christ and know that it's legit. We thank you for our ability to come here and freely look in your word. We pray through Christ. Amen.